Hello, everybody. Mackenzie here from Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. Yes, I know season five has been taking a bit longer to get put together and get out. But I promise you that toward the beginning of 2023, we will have the season five premiere. And boy, do we have a great season lined up for you. And we definitely have some big announcements to make. In the meantime, though, between now and the new year, we are going to be doing something special. As you may know, I am part of another theater company called Cup of Hemlock Theater, where I am the co-artistic producer. And on that show, we do reviews of live theater that we see, as well as reviews of stage pro shots, as well as artist interviews and roundtable discussions. So between now and then, I'm going to be releasing our episodes we've done on musical pro shots we've covered, including the pro shot of Oklahoma starring Hugh Jackman. We have a pro shot of Showboat that we've done. We've done one of David Hasselhoff's Jekyll and Hyde. So we have a few great episodes that I love to introduce you to this other venue that I do. So if you have interests beyond musicals and want to know more about traditional plays and hear from other local artists, This is a great podcast you can listen to. So check out these episodes and I hope you'll join us on the Cup of Hemlock feed as well because you'll find me there as well. Thanks, everybody. Stay tuned for season five. I promise it's coming early 2023. Thanks so much. See you soon and enjoy listening. Hello, everybody. Another theater review on YouTube. Sounds crazy, no? Maybe so, but here on our little channel is what we do. We provide a pleasant yet thoughtful critique without breaking our proverbial necks. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we do these reviews if they can be so challenging? Well, we do it because it's our passion. And how do we do without losing ourselves or our tempers? That they can tell you in a few words. Openness to critical conversation. Hello, everybody. I swear I'm not with him. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, great start. Okay. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Duet Reviews. I am the co-producer of all things The Cup, Mackenzie, and I'm joined once again by my wonderful co-host, Man who journeyed through Nicholas Nickleby with me, Mr. Ryan Barakovich. Yes. Hello, hello, Ryan. hello, Mac. Yes, we haven't done one of these just you and I since Nicholas Nickleby. So I know, I know. Quite the treat to be jumping yes. into this interesting yes. documentary, right? Yes, indeed. And the documentary we are covering today is none other than from Broadway HD, and it is a documentary about the making and the impact of Fiddler on the Roof. And this 2019 documentary was directed by Mac Lukowitz. So we'll start with kind of how we came to the documentary, because this was a Mac suggestion. I saw it when it premiered at the Hot Docs Film Festival here in Toronto. It was a packed house. We actually had live theatrical performers do some of the songs as a prelude to the show. I believe the director, or at least some of the production team, was there to introduce the documentary. And it's been, ever since then, one of my favorite documentaries. It's just a beautifully powerful piece. We'll get into what it was like seeing it with a big 
full packed house audience, something we don't get nowadays due to COVID. But yeah, it was a remarkable experience and it is a wonderful documentary. Ryan, let's get into you and this documentary. First, kind of, oh, right. Oh my goodness, cup. Ryan. We haven't done this in it's so been too long. long. <laughs> it's been too long. Well, in my cup, I just have water in my silver tankard because, yeah, if I drink tea at this time of night, I'll be put to sleep. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. And yeah. I have my The Cup Cup, with, as always, orange Pico tea. Love it. Love it, love it, love it. And so let's get, so, so I guess we can kind of start with, Ryan, what's your experience with the musical that inspired this documentary? And what are your initial thoughts on the documentary when I suggested it to you? Okay, well, I have a long relationship. Tevia kind of at this point just feels like an old uncle type figure who comes in out of my life every so often. And, (laughs) uh, you know, he makes me laugh. He makes me roll my eyes. But overall, there's a special fondness there. I think actually Fiddler might have very well been one of the first plays I saw. There was a community theater company in Oakville, where I'm from, put it on when I was quite young. And yeah, my synagogue, or at least the synagogue my family went to at the time, was doing a fundraiser just to kind of get the community out. Like, you know, Oakville has a very small Jewish community and kind of wanted to support the fact that they were doing Fiddler at this community Mm -hmm. theater company and like did a fundraiser to generate interest so yeah my family took me to that and yeah yeah, I enjoyed it like from the very beginning I remember before like going to see it my dad like sitting me and my brothers down and trying to like explain the plot to us because I guess we were too young to just go in blind and like understand what is a (laughs) shtetl what is an arranged marriage like these are not necessarily the most obvious concepts too I don't even remember how old I was at the time but yeah so but I enjoyed it I love the music I love the comedy it's very fun And over the years, I've seen other different productions of it. I've seen the movie more times than I can count. And yeah, it's a special reading of it and play book club. We did. And like, there are things that I do, you know, maybe I'm a little jaded and I do having spent so much time with it. There's things that I do criticize it, just like a weird uncle in this way. (laughs) But overall, it comes from a place of fondness and, you know, just being a Jewish theater artist playwright. I do find that like it hangs over me in a way much like various other things do like i don't know to the same extent you could say something like the novels of philip roth do or the playwriting of arnold wesker just these kind of like grand specters that haunt my tormented jewish like an actual fiddler on the roof Uh, yes (laughs) in a tenuous balance indeed (laughs) how about you what's your relationship to fiddler well, I mean, this is one of my favorite musicals. It was our opening episode to season two on my other podcast before the downbeat, because it's one of those ones I knew we were going to do early on. It, it's one of my all-time favorite, favorite musicals. I came to it through the movie. My parents rented it when it was like on its 30th or 25th anniversary at the time, and when it was the two VHS box set from the local video store, and we watched that. I saw it in Toronto. It was supposed to be Topol in his farewell tour as Tevye at the age of 73. Hence why we bought our tickets for a Mervis show. There were seven, yeah, seven of us who were going to go see it, including my grandfather, who's seen Fiddler on the Roof numerous times. It's his favorite musical. And right before he got to Toronto, on one of his last shows in Buffalo, Topol blew at his shoulder and had to end oh, his run early. So instead of getting the wonderful Topol, 
I instead got to see the three hours of Harvey Firestein. I, I like Harvey Firestein. Like, I do too. He's, he's not do necessarily too. Topol, but I'm sure he would admit that himself. But like he absolutely admits it himself <laughs> uh, in the book about the making of Fiddler. They have an mm-hmm. interview with him in there. But I will say, as much as I like Harvey Firestein in certain roles, <laughs> Tovtevia is not one that I'm. I was very fond of. This is a very much heavy bass singing performance and having to listen to if i were a rich man yeah 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 fair enough I, and I, I, Har- he wasn't harvey, the ba- if, you're, yeah. if you're watching harvey apologies like we yeah, like it overall. i mean like <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean like he's wonderful as edna turnblatt in hairspray i think he, his dialogue seems like, like i think his best scene of that whole show was do you love me mm-hmm. because he because he didn't have to sing he was literally just talk singing it and that's where he did his best in that and my mother was not impressed she didn't know who firestein was so when my dad and i tried to explain to her who like, like who she was i don't think she ever realized just the voice he has which is very distinct and actually he does say when he because he did it on broadway he took over from alfred molina oh, took over from yeah. alfred molina when alfred molina did it on broadway and he actually requested to audition for the role because he realized just his voice is very distinct and yeah. it's like before I actually do this part, let me audition for you and let me see if you like it. And they did like it. And I mean, he did it with Rosie O'Donnell on Broadway. Nice. As Golda. So, so I can see why they brought him in as a last minute replacement for Topol because like they needed somebody who could. Yeah. And he was a welcome presence in this documentary as someone yes. who's like clearly informed on the play, oh, knows so the important. character inside he's, and out. He's like, very well read. Yeah, he's I appreciated his perspectives man. on yeah. it. Like, and, you yeah. know, there's so many other actors that I would have loved to see kind of interviewed in this. Like Alfred Molina would have been nice to, if we got an interview from him. He wasn't. Yes. And has Manny Patinkin ever played Tevia? I feel so, like in my head here's he the thing. has. <laughs> so he played it once in college mm-hmm. and it was right before his dad died. Oh. So I've always wanted him to do it again. They announced recently that they're going to be trying to do a remake of Fiddler. And my first thought was, you have to get Mandy Patinkin as Tevin. Mm-hmm. He's like the guy for it, even though he's like 70 years old. He could still he, like, he color up his beard. He's OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still got it. But I've always I've always thought Mandy Patinkin would be. A fantastic game. Yeah, I just he always had that. it in my head that he must have done it at some point. He did it once, yeah. but because it happened right around the time his dad died of cancer. And it was, it was I think it was either the last or one of the last performances he ever saw Mandy Patinkin do. Mandy Patinkin's always been very protective of never right. kind of going back to that part. He said in interviews, because other people have asked him, like, yeah, would you come back like and a, do Tevia? It seems like such a no-brainer for him to play. Right? This. Yeah, exactly. Like he, yeah, I love Mandy Patinkin. I've seen him mm-hmm. twice in concert. He is one of my favorite performers of all time. And I mean, even his concerts, I wish he would do some fiddler. He actually does Yiddish songs. In the most recent tour, he did a nice. Yiddish number where at the end of the show, they he had great uh, black and white footage of the Jewish people immigrating on the boats. And then that was juxtaposed with the recent migrant, migrants that are trying to cross the border. Which was also brought up in this documentary. It was. And so, and then he was singing a Yiddish prayer song o- o- over the footage. And it was a beautiful finale. It brought me to tears. It was stunning. Yeah. And once again, I didn't know what words he was saying. I mean, but you get the message and you get the point of what he's going for. And he's just a fantastic performer. Like, I would love to see him do the show in Yiddish. Mm-hmm. I think he'd be one of those actors that you could bring on. Everybody would completely understand what he's saying and what he's talking about but yeah no he's a fantastic also i think jason alexander 
would be another yeah. really he would be good. like a funnier one. Like I, I have a hard time picturing him hitting those like serious moments. Like, but I guess uh, Zero Mostel probably you... kind of was similar back in the day yeah, before Mostel was a created the new more form. Sticky. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, if you read the book, that that's part of, that gets referenced in this documentary. Mm-hmm. They talk about how Zero Mostel, during if I were a rich man, there is the joke that he would play put his hand and he would go into an open tin of milk mm-hmm. and splash him. Well, that joke just kept getting bigger and bigger right. as the run went on. So he was a bit more sticky. Yeah, like, and I love Zero Mostel. Like, I don't, I like, I don't have like a problem. He's with, very like, funny. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, I, like, watch I've him never... in those interviews. He does. And, like, we're, we're, we're... Mm-hmm. Yeah. go ahead. Oh no, no, no! I was saying, I, I, you can see his comedy in that yeah. one interview he does, where he's singing "If I Were a Rich Man" in the non-Jewish interview, where he goes, "We'll do it my way," and then right away, Zero Mostel's joke is. If I were a rich, yes, man. right with Dick Cabot, like yes, yeah. right, that and, yeah. So yeah, like I, I picture like Jason Alexander would be closer to a Zero Mostel, whereas someone like Mandy Patinkin mm-hmm. would be much closer to Topol, and I think there is yes. probably room for both. Oh yeah, well, once again, they just talk about it in the documentary how there's two different Topols mm-hmm. we get now. We get like kind of like the more modern Israeli. I can't, they could call it like almost like an Israeli. Well, yeah, because Topol uh, is like Israeli, and yeah. he was representing this kind of like gruff new yes. tough Jew that like the Israeli exactly. military conquests were kind exactly. of putting into the media at the exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that line of this is still my home, get off my land. There are two different ways of reading that line. And they explained in the documentary of one is a more aggressive of the why. In New York Jewish is more why. Yeah. <laughs> right? So so be very but I have watched other movies with Jason Alexander where he does play serious. He's done some fiddler on Broadway, but I do think he could if you direct him right. He can actually do a really good grounded Tevia. It just, he has to be reined in and really kind of honed. And I think that's the trick with any big characters like this. Like, to, like you can really take Tevia to a really extreme, comed- almost comedical spot that's really sticky and kind of over the top kind of, but then you also can make him too reserved and too serious. I mean, what's great about the character, and they describe this in the documentary is, Topol is a mixed bag. There are moments yeah. when he needs to be sticky and a bit broader. And then there are moments where he needs to be deadly serious and scary almost. We've gone on so, some tangents about dream yeah. casting the role of Tevia, but let's actually start reviewing this documentary. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So Ryan, as the newcomer to this documentary, what are your initial thoughts on it? Yeah, I think it's a very solid piece of like documentary filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's like not showy at all. It's just yeah. kind of straightforward. We sat down with all these people who have something to say about Fiddler, whether it's because they were in a cast of it or they have written some authoritative like book length oral history on it, or they're just, you know, people like Stephen Sondheim and Lin-Manuel Miranda, who just are obviously very big in musical theater and Mm -hmm. have a lot of memories and relationship to it, even if they were never specificately affiliated with it themselves. Yeah, who did it at his wedding. (laughs) Well, yeah, like, I I thought that was such an interesting scene where he, he and his, like, father-in-law of, like, an hour sing L'Chaim together with the whole wedding party getting in on it and as a surprise for his new wife. And, you know, Lynn said something funny in like the interview segment where he's like, it's the only song in the entire musical theater canon that's sung between a father-in-law and a son-in-law. 
He's right. I couldn't think of any others. He's right, but what, or at least I can't think of any others, but what's kind of strange about it is it's of a failed engagement. Like, true. Seidel doesn't marry Laser Wolf. Like, so I'm like, is this a bad omen that you're singing this to your new wife? Like, I think they could take that song out of context of the show. As they certainly did. Yes. Then it's like, it's okay. Because, like, they even cast a Limu Roman Miranda's dad as kind of the Russian constable Mm -hmm. that does the, yeah. Yeah. Heaven bless you. Like the kind of tenory yeah. part. They gave that to his dad because his dad wanted to be part of it. So, so and it, I mean, it's great. I mean, if you go on YouTube and watch the whole thing, yeah. it's fantastic. Like, I'm always like, I want to do that at my wedding now. Well, now it's just hacky because you did it yes. first. <laughs> I know. I know. I got to find something else. Yeah. Mind you, I think, mind you, the fact that the, he's right, there isn't much father, father in law, son in law, or even father son songs about marriage and weddings is like a it's like a missing part of the canon we, we yeah. gotta up that a bit you know mm-hmm. yeah but cool. yeah, no, so, yeah yeah so yeah, yeah so overall appraisal of the documentary yeah i think it's like full of just like great interviews fun mm-hmm. little historical tidbits and anecdotes like i said it's not very showy one thing i did like that kind of was i guess one of the showier moments is a few scenes where we had like animation in the style mm. of Marc Chagall. Yeah, like the painting you have behind you. And they talked about how Chagall's paintings very much inspired the inception of the musical. And even mm-hmm. so much as the title, Fiddler on the Roof, yes. came from looking at a very specific Chagall painting and I guess yes. has no referent in the actual original Shalom Alechem stories. Yep. But yeah, and so I do want to shout out, I wrote down the animator's name, Tess Martin, who yep. did like all this interesting work to just create these Chagall-esque yep. paintings and make them move in. They, it wasn't like used very much throughout. There was like one key scene when they were talking about rewrites in response to bad early reviews. And yes. they were all at a meeting at a bar together. And Jerome yes. Robbins says like, we're going to you know, overhaul the whole thing. 10 yeah. edits a day. Yeah, I forgot the yeah. exact quote. Yeah. And, and then it came up again later, like in another kind of key moment. Or it came up in a few times. The, it, the painting. It, it comes up several times. Yeah. There's only one moment where I wasn't a big fan of the animation. Okay, what was that? It was during the, when they're talking about the Havala song mm-hmm. slash ballet sequence because Danny Bernstein, who is who they're taking a lot of the Broadway clips from, he's giving such a beautiful performance on that cart. And I'm like, oh, don't cut away from right. him. Like, I, I, I don't mind it at the end when they're, when, and then they kind of, because they cut to him and then they cut to the bird animation, and then they cut back to him and they cut to the bird animation at the very end. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, just stick with him till the very end. Right. And I don't know. Watching a bird animation. pulling out of flower. Mm-hmm wasn't all that interesting i was yeah. much more pulled to danny bernstein and his emotional force because he talks about just how emotional that scene is and how polarizing it is because he talks about how during one performance he was doing of this song in this moment an audience member clapped mm-hmm. for this moment yeah right? she's dead to you good job right <laughs> like, exactly yeah so, so, so yeah, I, like it, yeah yeah it's my favorite scene of the whole musical actually yeah, well, uh, it is definitely a heart-wrenching one for sure. It's heart, but it, I, it's heart-wrenching, but a song and just how they did it. Because if you once again in the book, Miracle of Miracles, that talk that talks about the making of it, there actually was a twenty-minute Jerome Robbins ballet <laughs> that was supposed to go in this part, but then they cut it for time. Part of those ten edits a day thing. Well, and that's interesting because there was a one little anecdote that they said mm-hmm. in the documentary about how he didn't do like the standard kind of choreography, yes. big dance numbers. That the bottle dance was the one exception to the rule that dancing yeah. had to just be in dance appropriate context, like weddings. Yeah. And 
well, yeah. So, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, it's interesting yeah. that there was that whole big ballet number. There was a was big one that basically cut. resummarized the whole show. It's kind of like the Somewhere Ballet from West Side Story. Right. It's that same type of concept of it, a rehash of what's gone on, and that's why he cut it because he's like, eh, it's not overly important. And that, and what that does is actually turns the focus back on Tevia in this moment, who is having. An emotional breakdown because he knows I can't come home and cry because I have to be the strong masculine man who basically is holding the line of she's dead to us. I can't show emotion. So the fact that the way the movie does it too with Topol where he's where you can see him pushing the cart forward, then he has to stop and sit and just break. It's such great symbolism there of a man trying to move forward, but he can't. He has to stop. And it oh, just breaks me every time because it's such a hor- horribly, to hindsight, 2020 horrible decision that we know we would never make. But I also go, if you look at it from Tevia's perspective of he doesn't know he's leaving on a Tevka. He, like he sees he's got Saitel and Model and their family and his two other daughters and his wife to think about too in this community. And he knows if he takes one daughter back who's broken away from the community, then they're all ostracized. They are now all basically fruit of the poisonous tree and so yeah that's something that i out- like i get that perspective yeah. but i don't entirely agree and not just because well i wouldn't make that decision but like and i think it might just be a dramaturgical thing i don't think that there's sure. enough indication in the musical itself that they would be ostracized for it oh i, oh, they, they I like historically you historically you can musical. understand that that would be the case but i don't yeah. see it in the play itself that that ostracism there are several would. scenes in the stage show that give that like Tevye has the whole monologue of a bird may love a fish, but where do they make a home? And there's a whole lot more. There's like a whole bookstore scene where basically the Russians are coming in and antagonizing the community. And there's a, I mean, I think the whole fact that this community lives in fear of these Russians who, who basically we see them, they program the wedding at the end of act one. So, and the fact that in their first scene is like, may like, we spit on the czar. We spit on the Russians. Yeah, but like, I think like if, it's very much they are against that underworld. In my mind, change. if I don't remember what Pava's suitor, fellow Russian guy, his Yetka? name is. Yetka, yeah. Like, yeah. I think if Tevia were to embrace that Yetka and let him into their community mm-hmm. as someone who's basically renouncing the czar as opposed to having... Chava be renounced by Tevya, I think there would be room for him in this community. And like, he's obviously not, he's obviously not the one committing pogroms against them. Like, it's a very, like, I think there is true. Like, I don't know, but we don't get much characterization from him if this is something. No, he's, he's kind of the third suit that kind of gets yeah. left behind. Yeah. He gets he's the no, least amount of development. He's no model, he's no project. No, no, exactly. He's the third one. Yeah. He doesn't even get a song, he gets a few scenes. And that's basically, and usually he's double cast as like Fiatka plus somebody yeah, else. Or I've seen productions people. where like they have him in the bar scene and he's the one that sings the big Strava, like the big right. thing, like, thing there. But I mean, we see what's great about the Tilive scene is that we see the potential of this community to come together with the Russians, mm-hmm. but then it's broken asunder by the constable in the very next moment going, a pogrom is coming, te- yeah, te- but to warn you as a friend. But I'm of the mind that, like, I don't know, maybe this is naive to think that they would feel this way in 18th century Russia, but, or sorry, 19th century Russia. It is what year is a set? Or? It's like 1905. 19, okay, so it's even early 20th century, but it's anyway. early 20th. Or sorry, but, no, it's after 1905 because that's when the first revolution okay, happened. Okay, right. Okay, I anyway. blame the So it'd be like early 19th century. 
but yeah. yeah, so but I'm of the mind that like you can separate Russian people from the Russian military who like <laughs> like I are... think that's a very modern perspective. I think back then, because I mean Jerome Robbins talks about it, which is this whole musical is built upon circles. There's the most internal circle yeah. that is Tevya and the family, then it's the community circle that surrounds them, and then it's the outer circle, which is the Russians. And I mean the song tradition makes very clear of. And then there are others in the village, much bigger, more important people. We don't bother them. And so far, they don't bother us. Like right away, it's very clear from the beginning of there is a delineation between these two groups and they don't mix. I think the film did a better job of of making the constable more sympathetic character because they have like the inspector come into the town before the program kind of going, you need to do some more programming. Like, like I can use do your job and constable's kind of like, oh yes, absolutely. Don't send anybody else and I'll take care of it. And we don't get that scene in the stage show. No. Which is too bad because it does humanize the constable. Yeah, and, and I like humanizing the constable because I don't think that, like, you know, I think there is something to the following orders. Not necessarily he does seem to have a legitimate yes. fondness, mm-hmm. if not quite friendship with Tevia. Like they do have a friendship. Mm-hmm. They are very yeah. friendly. I mean, there's the whole great line of it's too bad, Tevia, you're a Jew. I like you. Mm-hmm. right so and there's and Tevia Tevia says, says i'm t- too bad you're not a jew yes exactly mm-hmm. and there's the whole thing of you who have known us all your life mm-hmm. will now throw us out in three days yeah so i like right? humanizing so, like, that a... character i think there is something to it but at the end of the day he's a man doing his job and yes it's a yeah. horrible job <laughs> a horrible job yeah but yeah. history's full of like you know... oh absolutely right i mean we can get into the whole World War II thing of I yeah, was we don't, we don't need to no. talk about the exactly. banality of evil in this. Yes, no, we're not. <laughs> that's a whole different show. So that's yeah, let's. Yeah, this so, yeah, though. So yeah, I like the documentary overall. I think yeah, it's pretty like straightforward. I wouldn't necessarily say it's like my favorite documentary ever, but I think it's solid. It's full of good anecdotes, and I'm yeah. happy. I, again, I'm glad I watched it, and certainly does like put context. The kind of overall sort of appraisal, I think it's very clear in its theme. Of like, mm-hmm. what is this documentary trying to communicate? It's that this fiddler is this universal story that's mm-hmm. appreciated in all cultures. It's not just American. It's not just yeah. Jewish. It's not just like Ashkenazi. It's not just yeah. Eastern European. Or it's it has this like resonance worldwide. And we've mm-hmm. all heard stories about this before. The Japanese one is like yes. a very <laughs> famous one that you know they mentioned several times in this documentary. But yeah. I like how we expand the scope even more mm-hmm. so to we see Dutch productions, we see the Thai production, we see yeah. uh, the inner city uh, middle school productions. And, yes. and yeah, I like, uh, yeah, it's sort of kind of, I guess, beats the point over your head a little bit of just how like universal yeah. the story is. But like, it's, you know, it's cohesive and it's theming and we can't blame it for that. So overall, no, and exactly, exactly. Yeah. And Jerome Robbins was in Jerome Robbins was very smart mm-hmm. to make the writers go for that tactic because he understood to make this story work because audiences probably didn't have an appetite to go see a show about Jews in a shuttle going through a pogrom. But the minute you expand that into this larger thematic concept of tradition and the battle of tradition, new world versus old world, that now opens the floodgates to now you can do it worldwide. And I mean, you and I have talked about this many times off camera of how do you do this production? Is it something that should be done strictly by Jewish actors? Or is it this universal story that you can do with anybody on stage? 
Yeah. Is it a universal blind casting show? And I've long been of the position that I feel like anyone can do this show. I know our friend Max Ackerman, especially Mm -hmm. on the Indecent panel, had some stronger opinions of the opposite direction, but he's not here to defend his point, so we might not need to. (laughs) No, I mean, I think I agree with Max to a certain point of if you do have a, a the ability to cast Jewish people in the roles. And this show is very specific, like it is time and place specific, that it should be done that way. I mean, obviously, if you're going to do it in Tokyo, in an inner city middle school, you don't have access to that. Well, but I would challenge that because there are Jews that live in Japan and you could like, you know, they might be Japanese. Like there's actually kind of a lot of interesting diversity in Jewish communities. And like, but I like... I don't think just because, oh, guess we can find one Jew that, okay, well, let's get him in here to play Tevya in this otherwise all <laughs> Japanese production. I think yeah. different contexts cast it in different meanings. And I think it's yeah. okay to embrace this. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, there, that's why the show's been done every day since it's been opened in 1964. As they say at the end, this is the most widely produced. And I like that's no, because a fun you can't fact. Take I don't know movie. how you verify that every single day. Well, there hasn't been they, like a one day gap. <laughs> Well, I think it's, I think it's just, uh, there would be a one day gap because Mondays are usually dark. Yes, exactly. Theater, so it's not every day, but I basically know, almost o- overstating every day. the claim a little bit. But okay. this idea of universality, I think is interesting. So a play, I actually just have it sitting right here on my desk that this kind of makes me think about is Ooh. this very famous Jewish play. It's the Diary, the Diary of, Anne Frank, of Anne Frank, as dramatized yeah. by Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. Mm-hmm. And sorry, Good I play. have it on my desk because it's actually, it's one of partly one of the case studies for my dissertation Very good. and it's there's a lot of like when you read like the kind of scholarly discourse on this play mm. there's a lot of discussion about the americanization of anne frank's story through this yes. play and like making it less jewish less german less dutch less specific to its kind of european jewelry context yeah. and putting it into something that americans can relate to and there's very famously there was another playwright named Meyer Levin who was who had the rights to write his own version and then the Frank mm-hmm. family or well Otto Frank didn't like it and he went to Goodrich and Hackett instead and you know right. the kind of big you know various people have strong mm-hmm. opinions about whether or not the Meyer Levin version was and or would have been better but right. it's you know, the big critique is that, well, these two Goyish playwrights, Goodrich and Hackett, this husband and wife duo, kind of turned it into something that the original diary wasn't by right. kind of removing the Jewish elements. They have a Hanukkah scene in there, but it's not about the religious elements of Hanukkah. They turned it into a gift-giving holiday, just like Christmas. And uh-huh. to make it something that, like, you know, the Goyim audience that would probably see it on Broadway could relate to. And, like, I... I don't necessarily have strong opinions on whether or not that's a bad thing or a good thing. I see both sides to this argument. Yeah, Meyer, I mean, M- Meyer yeah. Levin kind of sounded like a bit of a, I don't know, that crazy person is the right word, but very obsessive. He quite literally wrote a memoir about his experience and his lawsuit with Otto Frank that he titled Obsession. And <laughs> so yeah, like he, he has this strange fixation to the idea of Anne Frank, the diary, what it represents. And I've never read his version of the play, so I don't know how good or yeah. it would even be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, once again, I think for this, I think depending on how you cast it, it just highlights different things. I think when they did it as an all Yiddish production with an all Jewish cast, what I've read, doing like things seems like the Sabbath prayer mm-hmm. has a very clear message and context 
to it that say if you did it in, I don't know, South Africa, which was sure. a South African company, I think the, the Sabbath Pharisee would have a different view of, okay, this is a tradition. This is a generalized, a, a generalized version of a prayer versus it being, versus doing it in Yiddish with a Jewish company. I think there, I think there's things that are lost and things that are gained depending on how you cast. Well, once again, as with any adaptation, any direction you do of a play or a musical, you choose to highlight certain aspects of a piece because you can't do it all. Like a director and producer will come in like with a very particular way of they of how they want to see this. I mean, that's why we do all these revivals. I mean, you look at the Sam Mendes revival versus the Yiddish production versus the Jerome Robbins original production. They all focused on very different elements of the yeah. story while still keeping it under the realm of tradition. But I mean, like there's the, there was a whole critique about Sam Mendes and the fact that he had the daughters during Matchmaker Matchmaker, they were bathing. They, they, they did. They had a bath on stage, like obviously in undergarments, like right. yeah. very appropriately dressed. But still, like it was very. Oh, they're not just dancing with mops. This is a bit more of a modern, risque version of of Fiddler on the Roof. But I mean, like you hear about how like Jerome Robbins' version had all the houses, mm-hmm. and he yeah. was big on the symboliz- the symbolization of the circles. The circles were always a big thematic element to him and yet you look at the Yiddish production and the way they designed it and the way they directed it it was very much to highlight the language like that she had if I remember correctly from the pictures of this production they had Yiddish text on written on like fabric around the space right so it, it was, it's very interesting once again that's what makes this musical really great is that you can take it in yeah. so many directions with so many different types of casts and that, I think yeah and I think like to kind of counterpose it to the Diary of Anne Frank example, since I brought it up anyway. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't think kind of just, if you take the essential fiddler of the roof yeah. unmoored from any specific production, I don't think it's really Americanizing the story the same way mm-hmm. that Goodrich and Hackett Americanized yes. Anne Frank's story. Yeah. Like it's still very much in the culture. It, mm-hmm. Like it helps that it was like a mostly or all Jewish creative team, like except right. for Halperin Spoon. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> but, but mind you, Hal Prince was smart because yeah. he said, I don't understand this. Ergo, I will not direct it, but I will produce it. Yeah. Because he realized I don't have the right sensibility for this. And I, I applaud him for that because Hal Prince was coming off a big directing high with, oh, what is it called? Is it the girlfriend or the know. boyfriend? Something like that. Either way, it was a big rom com musical he was coming off the high of. So he was so so he was in high demand. He was producing. He was directing, and you could, he could have easily said, "Yes, I will direct it." Now he didn't because he understood. I need we need somebody else's sensibility to create this piece. Mm-hmm. But he was smart enough to know I'll produce it and I'll get money off it. <laughs> so he was smart enough to know that much. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So anyway, I don't remember what got us on this tangent. But did you have oh, any kind of oh, last thoughts was... of that overall? No, I mean, other, I mean, as I said, it's a documentary that brought up a lot of unique thoughts, things I hadn't even thought about. Like when Harvey Feinstein talks about the fact that Tevye never talks to God after the Havala ballet. Yeah. And I was like, I never noticed that, but that now gave me a whole new appreciation for how, if I were to direct this show, or if I ever, one day ever got a chance to play Tevye, how you play that scene, which is, you almost have to do that final soliloquy he does between God and himself, where he's the, if I bend that far, I'll break. Like, like it's, I guess one of those things of like, it's almost like a breakup scene that he's doing where he's like, yeah, I'll give this one to you because I can't bend that far, but I'm really freaking pissed at you for this. 
because you made me choose between my daughter and you and my faith. And that's something I never wanted to do. Because he always finds a way to get around or justify himself to his friend with his other two daughters, but this time he can't. And it's and once again, it's one of the it's one of the hardest, most beautifully written scenes of the piece. And the fact that Harvey Farsing pointed that fact out that he never speaks to God again, I was like, huh, I never caught that. But it explains why he's so angry at the end. Because he's just in pain. After that scene, till the very end when he walks off the stage, he is a man who is every step he takes is just another step in a painful direction. Like he's a broken man, basically, when he leaves the stage yeah. at the end of this piece. But then there's hope at the end because he takes the he takes the fiddler with him and he does indirectly say goodbye to Hava. Yes. So like he exactly. doesn't completely so, abandon her. Like exactly. Well, he's still she's still dead to him, but like yes. at least But he'll talk to the dead. God God be with you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, and exactly. that's, that, that's the thing that never I never understood, not just about this musical, but mm-hmm. about the very Jewish he's dead to me, my son or my daughter. Like it's yeah. the whole you know, the line in Fiddler is Hava is dead to us. We will forget yeah. her. And like that's yeah. not how death works. You don't just forget your loved ones when they die. That's the opposite of how yeah. we react to the dead. So like, yeah, right. there's something very insincere about this very guilt-trippy, Jewishy approach to yeah, disappointing I mean, relatives. What, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing in any organized religion, this whole concept. I think it's called a shiva. I think it's what they call in it in Judaism, the documentary. Well, yeah, where basically they exile you from, from, well, from the community. It's not quite what a shiva is, but it's fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. that type of... Because Zero Mustel, he, like, they found out that he had experienced this situation that Hava goes through. And I mean, it's something that happens in every organized religion, right? Anybody who steps outside the, org- the community and goes somewhere else is ostracized. It happens with race. It happens with religion. Basically, if you go outside the community and go with the other, we will exile you because it's a it's the unknown. It's the threat of the unknown, and it's an old, almost I don't want to say caveman, but it's that old co- concept that we've been living with since the days of cavemen and clans. And, and that type of thing like, yeah, like you go back into thing like shakespeare right from. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean yeah exactly i mean we're moving away from that but i mean we still see that in this day and age where my son or daughter comes out mm-hmm. ergo now that child is no longer mine you are not welcome yeah. in my family anymore that is still happening today it's still very much a tragic part yeah but i do think there's something to be said for the fact that especially with like to take the like queer analogy yes. that you've just brought up and yep. they actually also brought up in the documentary like yeah i think if we put it in that lens it becomes very hard to sympathize with tevia if we're thinking oh, of it in the, well but like yeah and i think that's yeah. maybe a newer dimension to it that mm-hmm. in 1964 wouldn't yeah. have been brought on but like you know if you expanify it if you will and make it about oh yeah it's about lgbtq yeah. like anything yeah. now it, it does become harder like assuming you are like someone who is tolerant of queer identity which i hope right. everyone listening is yeah uh, if you're not work on that i hope yes. it's yeah it's i think it becomes very hard to like feel sympathetic towards Tevia when he's basically just like that republican father who denounces his daughter because she's gay like yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly i mean any father i mean republican democrat liberal conservative mm-hmm. that can happen to anybody i mean i mean it can happen in any family and that's the tragedy of it and i think that's why it's even more important to have that scene of and god be with you because it shows the crack in tevia's armor there and i think that's the, it's that open door of there's the potential in the sequel maybe the, the sequel, sequel to Hitler. 
Fiddler and Uncle Avram, the new sitcom musical. <laughs> yeah, I'd watch that as a sitcom. That sounds right? I think you got some fun with that. Yeah, I'm sure um, Uncle Avram's a hoot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the kooky American uncle. But yeah, I, yeah, yeah. So I think this documentary is fantastic. Like it brought so many perspectives and interesting elements. Like I didn't know all about Shul Malekum. I like I knew his name. I knew that these were the stories that were based upon his work, but I didn't know his opinions on matchmakers and that whole aspect. And his in his stance on matchmakers now explains why he is so against Yenta in this musical that he is really sticking it to Yenta with the with these daughters. And yeah, I love the close reading they did on a lot of the songs and just the impact of the songs, like the fact that I think it's Jerry Bach or Sheldon Harnock, one of the two of them, talks about how like the "Do You Love Me" scene is almost a wish fulfillment. Uh-huh. song for them about how they wish their parents would have been yeah I, I think that's beautiful like it, I, I, yeah do you love me is my other favorite moment of the show besides the ballet and song sequences do you love me i think that's a beautiful song that is it, it just warms my heart every time yeah i get to that point on the show i'm just like oh like <laughs> like tevi knows how to work gold when he wants it when he wants to like he knows how to kind of get her go on his side which is great it shows this marriage of the odd couple where at one point they're bickering and fighting and then another moment they're loving one another. And the deep down, they do have a love for another, like, even mm-hmm. if they don't always agree on topics. Like, yeah, it's, it's a really like, beautiful couple. I have very mixed feelings about the song, Do You Love Me? Because I think it is just like a beautiful, sweet moment mm-hmm. in the play. But yeah. at the same time, I'm also like, oh, this is, it's trying to kind of hammer home the point that yes, our children are being progressive and breaking out and making us question whether or not the system works, but well, we love each other. So I guess it does kind of work the old system. And it's, it seems to be backpedaling on what I think is interesting about the more kind yeah. of revolutionary themes that yeah. are being put forward in the yeah. daughter plot lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, yeah, I think the Do You Love Me song, I think it's a sweet moment, but I also think it's a moment for Golda and Tevia to reflect and go, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, 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 we lucked out. I mean, we know Frumacera and Lazar Wolf did not have good marriage. And even after she's dead, she's still haunting freaking Lazar Wolf and his wife. Well, is she really, or is that just yeah, something exactly. Tevian? But, but, but it's the whole thing of, we keep bringing her up and she's not thought of as nice. No. But it's the whole thing there. But it's like the fact that like, oh, we actually did find love. We actually are just like our revolutionary children that, they're marrying for love. They are going with their partner. I mean, yes, we were forced to uh, down the aisle. But, but they found it along the way. Yeah. They and found I, it along the, the, the way. The part yeah. about the song that really breaks my heart is the fact that they even need to ask. And I think that's the indication that there's something wrong with the old system. Well, yeah, well exactly. There's something wrong yeah. with the old system. And I think it's more just, we. Uh, these are people who, Lily, she says, I cook the meals, I clean the house, you're doing your cow thing. Like, like we are, like they were living, they lived, like back down the show, you were, li- you were living hand to mouth, basically. Mm-hmm. They never had time to stop and ask that question. So when you have, you have to stop and think, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. 25 years on, what, like, like, what are we? And I mean, every empty nester parent who, once the children are moved out, have to ask each other that question. Was it just I, the kids that were keeping us together this whole time? Right, yeah. exactly, exactly, right? Mm-hmm. So, 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 so is there common ground? Is there common love? And I think that's something every couple at some point has will ask themselves because, yeah, when you're in that 18-year rat race with the kids, just trying to get them to piano lessons, to, to, get, to get them ready for college and university, whatever their next post-secondary education step is, and you stop and go, oh, where are we at? 
Right. And, uh, yeah, yeah. It's just a, and once again, as I said, it's a, it's an older couple song. And this <laughs> yeah, and it's very nice. Yeah. I, I like it, it a lot. It's, it's I, very, I just, yeah, for all my misgivings, it's, it's still a very beautiful song. It is a beautiful song. I will sing that at my 25th wedding anniversary. Go for it. <laughs> so to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> and then she answers like, oh, wait, do I love him? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, him? 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, oh, yeah, so I mean, you also, so, so I mean, you said you had thoughts on the song when Messiah comes. Okay, so 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 what do you think of the song? Because they bring up the fact that it, it, it was a bit of a bone of contention. It was well liked by the cast, but the audiences were not taken yeah. to it. Yeah, so I think so. For those who haven't watched the documentary and maybe <laughs> have never even heard of this, yeah. it was kind of right at the sort of basically the climax, uh, or yes. at least kind of denouement, depending on where you yeah. sort of place the climax in your own mm-hmm. Freytag pyramid reading of this play but it yeah, comes after they've been given the edict to get out they begin and, and was replaced with anatevka which yes. we kind of all now know to be this like somber closing number yes yeah but, but, it, but it came from a, a faster upbeat song the anatevka yeah. is actually a chorus from a letter writing song to uncle avram mm-hmm. <laughs> that and actually they just slowed the tempo down and took the chorus and that's what they used for anatevka mm-hmm. but yeah when messiah comes go for so, it Ryan. Give it so like us. Okay, so well, first of all, I think before even getting into just like tonally, does it make yeah. sense to have a comedy song here? Mm-hmm. I think something about the idea of building a song around the idea of when the Messiah comes, mm-hmm. I think it would impede this universality that yes. the whole documentary is constructed around. And it would make it, it is a very Jewish idea of kind of, Correct. you know, and like, you know, there is a lot of Jewish stuff in the play, certainly. But yeah. I think this one might, kind of teeter it too much into that kind of Correct. Meyer Levin as opposed to Goodrich and Hackett yes. kind of if we want to go back to the Anne Frank yes. metaphor yeah, exactly. comparison that because yeah like Judaism quite literally you know the branch off point between Judaism and Christianity is Christians yeah. think the Messiah did come and his name was Jesus and Jews think that guy you know Messiah he's still going to come someday so I think kind of anchoring even if it is a comedy song anchoring it in this very like Jewish theological Mm-hmm. idea that it's not just about the plight of displaced people anywhere and it could be anyone it's specifically theologically rooting it in this kind yeah. of culture and tradition and i think that maybe especially at such a pivotal climactic moment might have lost a lot i don't know if we could have had like all of our japanese and thai and dutch productions necessarily yes. and if the temptations would be singing songs from it like but yeah so <laughs> Which was a great moment in this documentary. But yeah, so that's kind of was sort of my first thought of just even building a song around the idea of the Messiah or the, you know, Messianic Judaism traditions like. But then to kind of just get to the bigger point of like, it's such a kind of like upbeat kind of, it feels more at home and funny thing happened at the way to the forum than it does in <laughs> like, yeah, it really feels like a comedy tonight type song. Yeah, it doesn't work in this moment. And I completely agree with the decision to cut it and go with Anatevka, which really just does hit, like gut punch you and like you know obviously yeah. that's the one we we have and that like it really works very well and i love yeah. it a lot but i'm skeptical of the idea that a comedy song couldn't work i in- think i uh, well i i read up on the song mm-hmm. and they recite it in the documentary too they yeah. do i mean they have a verse i mean if you look if you buy the yiddish album of fiddler okay. they actually include all the cut songs from the musical and there's quite a few. They have the original opening song that we hear briefly in the documentary of there's noodles to make and da-da-da-da-da. And you hear that melodic line that becomes tradition, the mother's line in tradition. But anyway, with Messiah Comes, originally it was supposed to be sung by the rabbi. And I think they're 
the original direction of it was this is the rabbi giving a pep talk basically it's that moment of hey guys i know it's bad don't worry we'll be okay it's almost like that grandfatherly because because the song is spurned on by when tevia says to the rabbi rabbi if the messiah were to come now would be a time and in the stage show now the line is we always have to search for him somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But in the original stage show, transitioned into this into peppy, song. peppy song about which I, I don't think it would be peppy. I think it'd just be more of a sore, uh, almost like a put on a brave face, like I, 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 almost like a mix of when Messiah comes. Like it's almost like that right. trepidation. Like come out tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Whereas, it also has a bit of that Yiddish humor that we hear in that song too, where it's like. That's it. but once again, I don't think it works because of the fact that Unatevka is a communal song and the show is all about community and tradition. Right. So it's important to get the group voice in this moment of what are they really losing? And it's right. the community, it's the breaking of the circles. I argue that the rabbi means. could be a voice of the community, sort of like a Greek chorus type character. And like, yeah. and you know, it's funny that you kind of putting it in like this sort of pep talky tone. I like listening to it for the first time because I never even heard this song or knew about mm-hmm. the song before this. Yeah. I kind of the image I had in my head wasn't like, okay, tough times pep talk. Mm-hmm. It was end of life of Brian. Always look on the oh. bright side of life, which is like, you know, honestly, like I love that. It's like one of my favorite, like it is a great of any song. movie ever because yeah. like, it, yeah, it's and like, you know, it definitely fits the dark comedy tone yes. of that movie that maybe doesn't yeah. quite fit with Fiddler as much. Or no, least, definitely. But like, I think there is something to the idea of like, well, to take it back to ancient Greece, a trilogy of three tragedies would always end with a satyr play and you would have, right. you know, the, and like there's, like we've lost this tradition because we always think now the tragedy is the doom and gloom and kind of ending on the somber note. Yeah. And I, I don't remember if it was Laurence Olivier or John Gielgud, but at one point, I think it was either in the 60s or 70s, one of those two, you know, eminent British actors did a production right. of, I think it was Oedipus. And mm. it ended with him like, you know, he's stabbed out his eyes, he's right. bleeding, he's sobbing, it's the torment, he's going into exile curtain goes down and then curtain immediately goes up and he's on stage with a big phallus doing a ridiculous song and dance same actor (laughs) like and it was like kind of the audience at the time at least in the reports that i read of this like it was so much more devastating to switch to that starkly than it would have been to just end on oh poor oedipus right and so i think yeah there is i'm not gonna just across the board say there's no room for the comedy song in what this Mm. should be a very sad moment yeah i think overall based on the core reviews they said they got in the initial pre-Broadway run <laughs> and you know it was a, master- a wise decision yeah, yeah. like we, we have a masterpiece with Anna Tevka is a brilliant song it is a sort of very yeah. poignant moment at the end of the play I'm happy that we have it but part of me kind of thinks so what could have been if this was yes. the ending we had yeah. and I mean I think it's also just a wiser choice because as you said this was this would have been a very white waspish mm-hmm. audience yeah. who wouldn't get the subtlety and the humor of it when messiah comes because they're so programmed and prone to go oh we're at a really sad moment wait a minute why are we having this song mm-hmm. now that it's like i don't want to say you have to spoon feed we almost have to do a bit of a meet the expectation of the moment of sad moment ergo leads to sad song <laughs> right so, and it works yeah. well, it I'm, does I'm not, work. I'm not it mad does about work. it <laughs> like, yeah. I, I mean I once again it's, it's a brilliant finale brilliantly tragic finale and i mean how can you not shed a tear i mean actually speaking of this moment so 
when I saw the documentary at Hot Docs, when they when we got to this moment in the documentary and they do the pan clip of them recording the film version of Anatevka and they have the soundtrack playing, every single person in that audience started singing. The mm. two balcony, every single person. Even I was mouthing the words. I knew the words. Well, you were one of the people in that audience. So I was, sense. I was, but it was really a packed house and everybody started singing the song. Everybody understood that song. And it was this eerie community moment of, we hadn't sung any other song as a group, but this was the one song that everybody started silent, uh, quietly singing along to. And it was like, yeah, this is the right choice for this moment of the show. It's the powerful community moment of, it is, on Tevka is a place. Yeah. But it's what you take away from that place that will carry you forward in this tough moment. Yeah, I think it's interesting. This kind of segues partly in a Ooh. kind of a way way a, another question I think you yeah. wanted to discuss in here. Sure. And it might, the comparison might, or the relation might not be obvious initially, but it'll feed into my answer to it. Okay. So you wanted to talk about, is this play about Tevya or is it about his daughter? Yes. Yeah, because the documentary kind of suggests at certain points that this is a that this musical is more about the daughters and their journey to modernization than it is to Tevya and his story. The story not even kind of goes back and forth on whose story. They never actually give a definitive answer themselves no, it, on who they think it, it is. doesn't like take up a lot of time in the documentary. It's not like this is if you take one thing from this documentary, it's this is the daughters' story. But yeah. there is like this interesting close reading of the song Matchmaker, Matchmaker, mm-hmm. where it is, you know, you can map out like a whole three-act structure just from this one song. And it is this call to action that does, you know, it is in that moment that the younger two of the th- three elder daughters, that's confusing as a sentence, but (laughs) that the younger two daughters come to the realization that, okay, we are going to follow in the path that Seidel is going to begin, that because they are very content following the matchmaker path at the beginning when they're singing about matchmaker, matchmaker, yay, it's all exciting. And they end the song realizing that, okay, no, we don't want this. What are the three of us going to do about it? And that does Mm -hmm. set the rest of the plot into motion, starting with Seidel and Model, and then Mm -hmm. goes daughter to daughter to daughter. And then we never find out what happens with the younger two. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, for me, I always go, this is Tevye's story. He starts the Mm -hmm. show, he ends the show. This is Tevye's story about the modernization of himself and his family. And I mean, as you said, after each daughter kind of gets the suitor and go, their story falls off like there's a bit of what's again in the book that I read about Fiddler on the Roof. There's there was a, they talk about how there's a cut song from Model and Seidel in Act Two that was called that was all about this miracle sewing machine that Model gets. Right. There's definitely this, there's the scene with the sewing there's machine, the scene, but the whole song. song. Yeah, there's a whole song about the marvelous sewing machine, and they had to cut it. And the actors went to Jerome Robinson and went, Jerry, why are we cutting this? And he goes, Kids. Once you're married, the story isn't about you anymore. We're moving on. And like, <laughs> you're not the central couple. <laughs> and like, I would agree with that for the most part. I think yeah. a song about a sewing machine is no great loss, like just in general. Like, but well, once again, yeah. it was a continuation of the model inside the story. Yeah. Like we kind of hear a bit about what they're up to. We hear about like, they're hungry like squirrels. They had a kid. Like some time has passed. They're doing it. They're happily living together. But it's like, other than that, we see them briefly throughout but in act two. But really act one is their story. And their story about their marriage and then act two is kind of the other two daughters. And even then Huddle is wrapped up very quickly. Like she gets the opening of act two with the, with Perchick's song, Now I Have Everything. And she has her, and it's like, oh, I'm going away. Oh, 
yeah, yeah. Quick, get get her off to Siberia yeah. quickly. This yeah. isn't. And then Hava is like doing a whole bunch of stuff unseen in Act Two, where it's all of a sudden like, I want to marry Vieka, Papa. We've had we've been having all these secret dates off stage, you know. Yeah. As bird and fish marriage end. So like I would agree that like individually it's not about any of the daughter characters. I think there is the compelling argument that the daughters collectively make up like an interesting central presence throughout, yeah. like because it is the story of just one daughter to one daughter. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's less about the daughters themselves. They take the action that sets the plot into motion. But the play is really about Tevia's reaction to that action. Right. And the way that he processes it, bends, but doesn't break, mm-hmm. or then does break at the end. But like, yeah. well, yeah, so I... But what's in that's his journey, right? Because at the very end, he does yeah. slightly break with the, and well, God be with you. Well, yeah, but like, and Matchmaker, after Matchmaker, Matchmaker, the daughter's journey is done. They've yeah, made they don't their have de- another song. Well, and, and not even about not having another song, but they've made their decision by the end of that song and then it's just about doing the steps to make that happen but tevia goes on a journey throughout the entire piece so it is very much so and the thing i said kind of like what was kind of transitioning us from the previous question into this one is part of me wanted to be a dick and answer this question no it's neither of their story Anna Tevka is the protagonist of Fiddler. I think you actually make a very good argument. No, the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, no, wait, that's not true. And I'd be a dick to say it because this is not The Wire. This is like, you know, like in The Wire, Baltimore is the protagonist of that story. And then in Treme, New Orleans is the protagonist because that's, you know, that's what David Simon does best. But like, but at the end of the day, while the community is very important in the piece, just like the daughters are very important it's not really the story of the community. Like The Wire, to just keep up with this example, can be a story about Baltimore more so than it is a story about Jimmy McNulty or Stringer right. Bell or anyone because it's showing so many different stories going on in this town mm-hmm. so that the town itself takes on the central role as being the one connecting thread between them all. Yeah. But we don't have any other character that even comes close to Tevia in terms of presence, arc, development, so, yeah, the community is central, but I would not be a dick and say that it is the central character of the piece. It is the setting, and it is a very it is, like, it interesting is, textured yeah. setting. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, Anatevka is very much kind of like the unspoken character of the piece. Like, Anatevka, the town does have a presence, it has a beat to it. Yeah. And the fact that, like, at the end, it does die, basically, when these people leave. And there's the interesting it's, it's kind thing of almost that... like New York and Spider Man, like, Sure. Like New York is very much a character within the Spider-Man it's a character, but it's not the protagonist. Yes. Right? No, That's it definitely is not the protagonist. And yes. I think the interesting thing that they said in this documentary is how Jerome Robbins insisted that every villager have a proper name, that they none of them were just villager one, villager two, like mm-hmm. uh, that. Yeah. And that does kind of, it creates a bunch of more little characters, but yeah. the effect of that is that it does turn the community into a character in its own right. It does. I mean, yeah, like, like I just said, Jerome Robbins, he named every ensemble yeah. character and yeah. gave them a profession. Yeah, you know, it, was, it wasn't just even if it doesn't matter to the plot. It does, yeah. I mean, like you, you and I both know when we were casting and doing our reading in, in our book in our play book club, we do like the fact that there are so many 
these one-liner yes. individual solo characters that yeah, show up for like the, one scene and get one the line. There's the keeper. There's the candlestick maker. There's yeah. like a, yeah, like most yeah. of them, yeah, their profession does not factor in aside from like Laser Wolf as the yes. butcher and yes. the rabbi as the rabbi. Like none of yeah. their professions matter even a little bit. <laughs> no, exactly. And I mean, and I, mean, I think that's, and, I, and they talk about this fact that Jared Robbins refused to stage the opening scene till at the very right. end of rehearsals. I'm like, it, I'm glad he did because he gave the whole rehearsal process to build this community. So by the time he got to staging that song, the community was set. He just had to come in and go, move here, move there. You know your relationships to one another. We've built yeah. this up already. And I mean, I think that's the joy of this show is that there is such a, like, uh, such a strong community element that once again, it's why the show can be so versatile in so many different groups and cultures because tradition community is a universal uh, concept for people. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think there's something to the, you know, he needed to stew on it for a while in order yeah. to, like, flesh all that out. But, you know, when I heard that, like, kind of little anecdote, it kind of made me think about perhaps the tyrannical nature of someone like Jerome Robbins. And yeah. this documentary did not shy away from that topic. No. want to pivot into that for a moment. I was about to say, let's pivot into that because, yeah, so basically this documentary certainly does not shy away from the, I'll go for it, I'll, I'll say it. Abusive behavior Jerome Robbins exhibited. And it's the same thing that happened in West Side Story as well, where you would make dancers feet bleed. He, I mean, he, when he, even when he was filming West Side Story, there was an actor with a, with a 100 degree fever and he fainted while filming the song Cool, but they kept going because yeah. uh, he drilled it into them. And I mean, like, so does, so the, I, ultimately, I think my question to you, Ryan, is does the ultimate positive end result of a really good piece ever justify the truly abusive behavior like we hear in this about how he basically was berating yeah. uh, the actor who plays Hava for that one line of we'll write to you in America mm -hmm. and him making her do that line over and over because yeah. she wasn't getting what he was wanting and so like, yeah so right off the bat I'll say my answer to this question is no no like I, I as someone who loves and values art and loves great mm -hmm. art and yeah. loves Fiddler and loves the yeah. finished product we got yeah. like you know we are it's called the humanities for a reason <laughs> because where you yeah. got to have the humanity to yeah. do it. And Jerome Robbins, great artist, but no amount of like quote genius or artistry can yeah. justify being an asshole, let alone an abuser to your collaborators. And they're not your subordinates. They are your collaborators. Yeah. And like, it, like, I don't know, to me, it's, like it doesn't sound as extreme as like stories you hear about Stanley Kubrick berating oh, yeah, Shelley Duvall uh, yeah. and on the set of The Shining, like yeah, where she loses her hair because she's so stressed. Yeah, like so. There's obviously more extreme examples, but the fact mm -hmm. that this maybe is to a lesser degree doesn't excuse it any less. Mm -hmm. But the thing that so like that's just my answer. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think any you know art cannot come at the cost of human well-being yeah. of you know your collaborators i don't believe in i do believe that there's something to the idea of auteurism but i don't mm -hmm. believe that it excuses any kind of mm -hmm. like misbehavior and that yeah. i think you should come from a place of respect for your colleagues and collaborators yes. and, and care for their well-being because mm -hmm. if you know just yeah it's not a good look it's not no. a, it's not good behavior yeah. But the thing that I kind of want to talk about, like in relation to this, is the way, and this maybe more of just like a, a cinematic analysis here, mm -hmm. but the way that this interlude is framed in the documentary. Mm -hmm. Because 
it's bookended by two like it's kind of it's it doesn't it's not an undercurrent that kind of like shoots through the entire piece it's just like a segment in the middle and it's bookended by two very interesting like lines and one of them was i believe it was jerry bach speaking it but he was quoting boris aronson who was the designer for the original production and he said that after they watched the bottle dance for the first time boris turned to him and said a guy who can do that kind of work you have to forgive him anything end quote (laughs) And this was our transition into the, okay, let's talk about some of the shadier side of Jerome Robbins' directing. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of like start unpacking the various things. And yeah, Boris Aronson's son, who was one of the interviewees in this, he even said during the segment that my father hated working for Jerry, but also deeply admired Jerry. (laughs) And like, and then like I talked about this book ending, the segment ended very kind of in my mind abruptly after we kind of lay out the sins of Jerome Robinson. <laughs> Sorry, Robbins. <laughs> it ended with Stephen Sondheim. And I quote, because I wrote it down verbatim. Love it. I would work with him any time. The end product is worth it. End quote. And then we move on. And then we cut to Zero Mostel on Dick Cavett. And then we yeah. still talk about Jerome Robbins even more so. We talk about animosity between Zero and Jerome. Yeah. Ab- about especially like, you know, the HUAC hearings. And I think that kind of is almost like the death knell. And well, yeah, maybe he was a dick to work with, but he was going through a lot. He was gay. He was persecuted by McCarthy. Yeah. Like He was a very complex person. Yeah, but I think this book ending, like cinematically, or like the editing and the framing of this documentary mm. is interesting that we start with the Boris Arison quote of you have to forgive him anything. Then we lay out the sins and then we end with Stephen Sondheim on the end product is worth it. And as I've made clear, sorry, Mr. Sondheim, I cannot agree with you on that. (laughs) As much as I love that end product, I don't think it's worth it. Yeah. 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 For me, I go, I mean, yeah, the end product is beautiful. I mean, I mean, the fact, I mean, you look at Fiddler on the Roof, West Side Story, so many works he did that, are iconic. That bottle dance is incredible. And I mean, the things he gets angry about, I, I, there's the one actor who plays was the original model. And he talks about how he became complacent and kind of stagnant in the role and drum berates him and says, I felt sorry for, the, for that girl marrying you. And I mean, it's horrible to say, but I think that note, and I think ultimately it comes down to delivery because you can be a tough director. I've had tough directors. My dad's had tough hockey coaches who he's learned a lot from, but I think it's in the delivery and the way you communicate your notes and how you treat your people. Because you can still be hard. Like if you have a vision and somebody is not getting it, and Jerome Robbins was someone who was precise and was a perfectionist himself, that he drove himself to these levels. And we know, and people who are like that do have high expectations for people around them. But there also is, as you said, the common decency and respect. So I think for me, I go, what I, do I agree with Sondheim that yes, it's tough, but I also go, I think somebody needs to talk, like if Jerome Robbins is still alive, I go, listen, I get what you're going for, but your communication method is not working. But yelling and berating at your Hava actress, because she's not saying a line right, is not getting your end result. Goal here is to ultimately be like, you're not getting it. Like, basically saying like, you're going at it the wrong way. This is what I'm looking for. Like like a much more gracious way of directing that moment. Like, yes, be hard and yes, get what you want. 
but communicate better. And I don't think Jerome Robbins was an effective communicator. I think he was quite, from what all the things I read about him, and Jason Alexander says the same thing when he was in the rehearsal room with Jerome Robbins when he was older. He goes, he is a perfectionist. He was someone who made me rewrite that bloody book for that show about him multiple times. We'd have an idea, I'd write a concept out, and then he'd throw it all out on me because he didn't like it. Like, this was someone who just was meticulous. And that's why you watch those iconic dances. And they are so spectacular because he was so specific. And that's why when you do these shows, his name and title of choreography is still there and it's still part of the rights package because you have to do it this way unless uh, you're going to use any of his choreography. And I mean, so I think for there I go, I understand him and I understand his work, but I also go, I don't think he was an effective communicator. And that's where I have a problem. I don't mind his, I don't mind his strictness and his drive to get the image he wants. I don't like the way he went about it. Is, uh, if, if that makes any sense. It I don't does, agree with his abusive behavior, but I agree that sometimes you have to be a bit of a, a tough coach, tough director to get your concept across. Like, I don't disagree with that. And you certainly are making sense in your point. I just, oh, good. I just don't, I just yeah. don't know if there's a clear line between those two things. And I think if we condone the like toughness, the strictness, mm-hmm. it's too easy, especially in a culture that does romanticize genius artists. Right. That like we, it's too easy to cross that line and for the adoring fans to prohibit it because it created something great in the end. And I, I don't know. Like I, I also just, I am quite skeptical of anyone who thinks of themselves as enough of a genius that they know what's best and none of my collaborators Mm -hmm. possibly can. So I need to be the tough, like, and I'm not saying Jerome Robbins wasn't a genius. He made brilliant work. Like, but he was very influential, like but but I away for many others. But I don't trust that kind of self confidence and audacity to think of himself in this way, and yeah, to oh, know that only he yeah. could. Like maybe maybe the actress playing Hava, like you know, was trying something different in her line, and maybe it's not exactly mm-hmm. what he wanted. But he should be open to kind of exploring what she's yeah. trying to communicate. Oh, with absolutely, it. Like, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I will say this: any good director, come in with your notes to the rehearsal room. But be ready to throw them out if some, it, I, 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 I given the collaboration, something else better appears. Uh, unless it's something that is vital to your image of like, this has to be this way because it drives another point that I'm making. Like for, like for me, when I direct, I make no, co- I make a lot of notes about a scene. Mm-hmm. But base, and then basically, I, my first thing is I have my notes, but let's run the scene by the actors first, let them run it, let me see what they come up with. And then we'll find a way to meld yeah. a final product together. But I think also Jerome Robbins, once again, hindsight 2020 comes from a different age. He does. Of, and I'm glad. A, a Broadway and of coaches. Like I mean, he does. And I'm glad we've moved away from that age, hopefully. But yes. you always hear horror stories about this and that director all the time. Oh, but absolutely. I, but even though he is perhaps like in this way, a relic of a bygone era, mm-hmm. people who are still active, like Stephen Sondheim, who like condone it and be like, oh yes, it's necessary because that's what he had to do to make the work the way it is. Like, I don't see, you know, these are people who, you know, are very influential and respected. And Mm -hmm. if they're still like, still, yeah, for this reason, that's a problem. Don't like, you can praise him all you want for the great work he did, but, but yeah. yeah, Tactics don't praise his tactics. Yeah. yeah, And I see a lot of praise for those tactics in the bookends of this segment of the documentary. Yeah. And and I mean, like even in the West Side Story documentary about the making of the movie, like uh, uh, Rita Moreno discusses how her feet were bleeding. Because yeah. she had to run America so many times. But then they also talk about how great 
Natalie Wood was with Jerome Robbins. Like there's her ballet sequence on the roof mm-hmm. at the after the rumble. And he got and he goes, he made her work that scene so many times. One of the times he made her rework it and rework it. And she was tired, but she reworked it until the very end. And they had a great collaborative relationship. Once again, I think it just comes down to I don't know where my point was going, but yeah, definitely don't praise the tactic. Yeah, I think we're going in genius. circles here. Exactly. We've kind of exhausted this point, but yeah, that's where I stand on it. Like, it's, yeah, uh, and I agree. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I'm in agreement with you. Like, yeah, the bottle dance is brilliant, but for him to braid and make audience like actors cry, mm-hmm. that is not okay. Yeah, that is not, never. It's just not worth it. No matter how great the art is, yeah. it's not the point of making art. Yeah, exactly. The mm-hmm. art of making art, as yes. Sondheim would say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about if I were a rich man. Yes, yeah, 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 because they make a very bold declaration in this documentary where Lin-Manuel Miranda has the, I don't know the exact quote, but basically he says, oh, let's see here. The Song of Fair Richmond is the most universal, universal aspirational song in the Broadway musical theater canon. And Ryan, do you agree with the statement? I, y- yes and no. Okay. It's not because I can specifically cite, oh, well, it's because such and such other I want song is much more aspirational. Right. Like there are maybe, you know, this might shock you, but this is actually one of my least favorite songs in the show. And mm. maybe part of that, that is kind of resentfully because I know it is so many people's favorites and it's like, <laughs> uh, you know, I just have to be a contrarian in this way. But like, of course you do. I, I and this might go back partly to some of like the, the specificity of like especially Jewish things like that we were mm-hmm. talking about and don't worry I'm not gonna say like ah yes Jews only want money don't worry I'm not going there but like but everybody wants money because we live under capitalism yes. and yes. that's and so I agree that's with get Lynn. Out of, get, yeah 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 to, to yeah own the system yeah so I agree with Lynn's point that oh so many people can relate to this and not just poor people like Tevia but even rich people always want to be richer and yeah. like, that's just kind of the way capitalism is structured. And, mm-hmm. you know, it can never be enough for anyone, whether you're poor like Tevia or rich like Laser Wolf, everybody always wants more. Yes. And so everyone, and trust me, if you're like seeing the show on Broadway, you probably, you know, aren't poor like Tevia. No, you we definitely st- have a few pennies to spare. Yeah, you can still be watching this and being like, ah, yes, I have a lot of money, but you know, I'm not Elon Musk rich. So therefore, yes. I can aspire to, and that's what's the thing that they always say about, like, you know, the American dream that, like, you know, nobody's ever impoverished. They're a slightly embarrassed billionaire or temporarily embarrassed right. billionaire. Like any moment they can make it big because that's the American yeah. dream of prosperity, but chances are they won't. And it's that aspiration that prevents people from organizing collectively to actually maybe do something about this very flawed system. Right. So yes, for as long as... You know, we agree that there's something universal about it under the current system mm-hmm. where that like, but if we maybe did something about that system, I would like to see a day where the song maybe is a lot less considered <laughs> universal. But it also, because under the system, money is such like a, you know, a, a great equalizer in a way that it's the thing that everybody needs, everybody right. wants. It, it works in this way. Whereas I think of a lot of other classic I want songs are always even if there's something very like 
universal and thematic at the core of them it's always about wanting something very specific right like i think like the wizard and i from wicked for example mm-hmm. like i can't personally relate to wanting to be the protege of the wizard of oz because that's so foreign to my like lived yeah. experience mm-hmm. but i can relate to wanting more money because i don't have enough of it like yes. or i think I don't know. It's interesting that Lynn is the one making this point in the documentary because I think Hamilton has two I Want songs Mm -hmm. in it. There's Mm -hmm. My Shot is the obvious one. And that is kind of like a very vague, it's not just about wanting to fight for the revolution, but it is about just wanting to prove yourself and make something of yourself. And then like, so, and I think that's something much more universal that a lot of people can grapple or like hang their hat on. But my personal favorite song in just, well, not even just my favorite I Want song, but my favorite song in Hamilton is Wait For It, which is the villain's I Want song, which mm-hmm. <laughs> or our, our villain storyteller, co-protagonist, depending on how you look at it. But yeah, but yeah Aaron Burr gets an I Want song and, yes. it's, and it's in direct opposition to the goals of the protagonist. Like, <laughs> but yeah, I think his, you know, his I want song is just about not wanting to wait for it anymore to not be in stasis to go right. for the things. And, you know, it kind of, it sort of dances on this line of specificity because it does go mm-hmm. into his specific situation. Like with his, you know, grandfather was a fire right. and brimstone preacher. I don't need to sing the whole thing here, but like, <laughs> what? Um, Oh, come on. But yeah, I think the best I want songs, like, I don't know. Cause and when we talk about I want songs, we're often talking about Disney Renaissance period, which well, was kind well, of- Well, 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 I mean, the Disney Renaissance, they, how do I put this? Like they basically brought, uh, the I want songs always been in a musical all the way yeah. back to- In musicals. Story but, with the fringe on the top. Okay, when people of our generation talk about I want songs, they're yes, often they, talking yes, about- Yes, they think of part, of, my, grew, yeah, part, part yeah. of my world, yeah. Yeah, and like, but that's another one. It's like, sure, we can talk about something universal at the core of just wanting to, you know, you feel different and you want to be yeah. accepted. But yes. at the same time, it's so specific of, I want legs. Like, it's like, I can't relate yes. to that specifically. Yes. But, yes. Um, but it's the thematic thing you're going yeah. for. So, yeah, I think the, what If I Were a Rich Man does well is it kind of, it has that sort of like thematic vagueness that a good yeah. I want song has, but anchors the specific in something that is very relatable, again, under yes. the very flawed economic system we live under. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I are mean, your thoughts? I- well, I mean, basically, I'm in agreement with you. I mean, in the fact that we have this number of if I were a rich man. And I agree with you. Like, it is not one of my favorite songs. I mean, oh. if you go listen to our season two premiere episode, it did not, it, it actually did not make my top three. It would have been a fourth. But ultimately, the song, it is a very bold song because there are a lot of great I want songs. Like, uh, 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 there's the Oh, I Want from My Fair Lady, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is just about not wanting to be in poverty. <laughs> which is very relatable you have the whole song camelot which is i would argue is an i want song from musical camelot somewhere that's green from little, little shop. shop right so there's a whole bunch of them but you're right what makes if i were a rich man work more than anything else is that it does the thematic and specific together and it's one of these universal concepts of we all would wish to have that big tall house with rooms by the dozen right in the middle of town to be that influential person and sit by the eastern wall or wherever you choose to sit and i still don't get that whole reference of the eastern wall but i get the idea of what he's saying of why he wants to be there and just having that time as he says just sit and pray and just sit and think and not worry about when is my next meal when it like like when is my next paycheck coming and all those concepts are so 
human and realistic. That and it comes right from Shomalekum. I mean, they show that those lyrics are based, as he says in the documentary. I hope they don't Shomalekum's work because I just stole a lot of his lyric or a lot of his text and just yeah, reworded. That's it. what good adaptation does. Exactly. It, like is exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So for me, I go. I think when I wrote this question out, I was like, I don't know if I agree. But then as I've been thinking today and listening to that song, I go, Yeah, no, I agree. This is the most universal aspirational. I want song of the Broadway Canyon because of its power to reach everybody in every corner of the world. Because everybody has this dream of winning the lottery, winning that 60 million lotto max and being on easy street and being, and just enjoying the high life. As you said, it's all spawned from a very unbalanced economic system. Even before this economic capitalism really became a thing, even you go back to the Greeks and the Romans, this was a concept that was was aspired to. Because well, class is always a thing. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Class is a thing that, that people no, are supposed to move up the ladder. Someday. Who knows? Someday. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Uh, like, were we almost done our questions? I think, we I think so. More. There's one oh, more. Yeah. Let's close out with this one. Yeah. So I'll kick it off. So this documentary features the show's Yiddish production. And Ryan, my question to you is, do you think there's another musical that would work as well in its native language as this Yiddish production? Because if you look at the production show, this Yiddish production, it was extended several times. It has a cast album for an off-Broadway show, which is very rare. It was well-received by critics. Like this was a show that started off as like like a Yiddish community thing and then it grew to being this big off-Broadway hit that now potentially after they're saying may actually go out on tour mm-hmm. as a new touring show. So mm-hmm. it's, and they're also apparently going to be releasing a libretto in Yiddish. So so Jewish companies around the world yeah. can do it in its native Yiddish language. So is there another musical you can think of that would work? To, Specifically with, with like a language change? Yeah, like, like a language change. Yeah. Again, a, a, a predominantly English-speaking audience if you swap the language to its to what the show to what the musical's native language would be, i.e., Les Mis French, which Les Mis um, was already French from the start, so not the best example. Was, but, yeah, but yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So I struggled to think of like a good answer to this, and I'm afraid I don't think I came up with a good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's a clear reason for why Fiddler is quite unique in this position. Mm-hmm. And that is because I can think of very few musicals that are, when I speak like American musicals, I can't speak mm-hmm. to like a global type mm-hmm. of contexts, but mm-hmm. I can think of very few American musicals where the creative team behind it is equally both of and not of the culture being represented. Mm-hmm. And that is because we have these American Ashkenazi Jews mm-hmm. who are all behind this show. Right. So they feel this kind of cultural affinity mm-hmm. to that old country that like, mm-hmm. you know, the shtetl life that is being represented in the play, mm-hmm. but are not themselves living in it. And they're not themselves Yiddish mm-hmm. speakers. So right. it kind of, it threads this needle very well that they weren't appropriating anything necessarily mm-hmm. by telling this story. Right. Like kind of, I was trying to think of a good example. I'm just like, okay, 
a Thai version of the King and I, but mm. like, but I'm yeah. like, well, that doesn't really work the same way because Rogers and Hammerstein weren't Thai. They were appropriating Thai story. If you can even really call it that, I don't know the historicity of like, I wouldn't just because yeah. it's based off a Welsh school teacher's book. Oh, well, that's even that worse. they then like, adapted <laughs> okay, into so, the musical. Okay, so, <laughs> so it wasn't even like from like a Thai like, story. It, it was an English, a British storybook. Something a similar or autobiography diary. Sure. A similar example that came to my mind to stick with Rogers and Hammerstein for a little while mm-hmm. is I think there might be something powerful to doing a rendition of Oklahoma in Cherokee or sure. or Chataw, you know, like like an actual like indigenous language from Oklahoma right. that that would maybe talk about, yeah, we have this story about all these white people who are very mm-hmm. uncritical about what about forming a state, right. a U.S. state in this land, and there's no indigenous characters in the piece, even though the title mm-hmm. is Oklahoma, which is a right. Choctaw <laughs> word. So I think yeah. maybe that could be, like, I would obviously want an entirely indigenous creative team, like, mm-hmm. to do this. I wouldn't just, but, like, just like you have your kind of Yiddish creative team doing this. Mm-hmm. But... I don't feel like I'm in a position to say like, this is the thing that should be done. I would like to hear from those communities themselves to see if that's something they are interested in reappropriating or reclaiming in that way, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it might not be the story they want to tell and I wouldn't blame them for it. And then I have my silly answer that I'll close out on. And that's, I want there to be a rendition of cats in the original cat. So every song is just meow, 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 meow. That would just tickle my funny bone. But no, that, that's my way of saying I didn't have an actual good answer to this question. No, that's funny. That is funny. Yeah. So I think for me, I think there's very few musicals that could do this mm-hmm. concept because Further on the Roof has earned this ability to do this show because this production in Yiddish spanned well beyond just the Jewish community that spoke Yiddish. Mm-hmm. It, and that's because the story and the music are so well known to the masses that they can come in and follow this piece very easily and not be totally jarred. Like they tried doing the West Side Story where all the sharks spoke and sung in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, and actually, Lemuel Miranda helped write those Spanish translations for this 2009 revival. And ultimately, they actually had to end up changing it back to English because general audiences were not connecting and they were complaining that, what is this? Why am I being sung to in Spanish? Even though technically that is correct. The sharks would not be speaking English a majority of the time. If they were alone, they would be speaking a majority of Spanish, except for maybe Anita, who was trying to be more American. Ergo, she would sing America in English. Right. But yeah, and I think West Side Story is another one of those shows that you could do it. I still think audiences were open to that in 2009. I think if we did it today, there'd be a much more welcoming concept. Because, like, But once again, it just depends on the audience's openness and willingness to go that direction. I think Lame is being sung in, in its original French mm-hmm. could potentially work. Because once again, that music is so well known and iconic. Everybody knows I dreamed a dream. Even if you did sing, je me de notre vie, everybody knows what that line is. Even if you hear it in a different language and the emotion is still there. But once again, I think it's one of these things of you have to know your audience. Like I would love to see a Miss Saigon done in Vietnamese where all the actors, unless they're interacting with American characters, sing and talk in Vietnamese because- yeah, that could be interesting. Yeah. But that could work. But I know yeah, that probably only works cinematically. You'd have to subtitle it. 
because if they came out on stage and talked like that, our audiences wouldn't understand it and would get and would get very upset because unfortunately, Ryan, as you pointed out in our previous segment, a lot of our audiences are not immigrant, non-waspish audiences. That is still very much a predominant section of our audience. Ergo, we unfortunately, even though I'm all for opening up the concepts further, but we do have to kind of I don't want, I don't know if the word right word is cater, but we do have to kind of yeah, no, accommodate yeah, whether that. we like it or not. And yes. well, I think there's something to be said about, I'm not sure what the quite word is, but I feel like we've reached a point just kind of culturally, the age of globalization, if you will, yes. where I think certainly that like upper crust waspier audience mm-hmm. maybe is open to cultural yes. tourism exactly. in this way. Exactly. Like, even that's if they why might... I think like a Spanish version yeah. of West Side Story would now work. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back in 2009, that was definitely not a thing, hence why they went that direction at first, it was well-received, but then they had to change it back because audiences were not responding to it and were yeah. all openly complaining about this change. Even though I'm like, yeah, Anita would sing A Boy Like That in Spanish because she's lost Bernardo and she is regressing and going back to the safe spot of singing in Spanish. Well, then Maria has a change of singing in English because now she is becoming more American. There's like dramaturgically a way they did it, which was really smart. I really did enjoy there's also concept. nothing saying that any of the ideas we're proposing in response yeah. to this question need to happen on Broadway. Like, no, you, it can happen anywhere. Yeah, you could do like the production you're proposing of West Side Story in Puerto Rico, and that would be yes. like that could be a very interesting like. I'm oh, sure, absolutely. And you wouldn't have to worry about the audience not understanding or yeah. not getting it because it's a mostly Spanish-speaking population. Exactly. 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 So yeah, I think what's the, it just comes down to, unfortunately, even like, even if it's a great concept. Yeah, you have to know the audience you're wanting to get, and your audience has to be open and willing to go that direction, which is too bad, because there's a lot of great shows that I think you could do it to, but you just have to look at it, see how it works, and then see if your audience is there to support that uh, concept. And if it is, great, go for it, because I do think, I do like this idea of introducing more of these native languages to these musicals. I think that is a fascinating concept that could work really well so yeah i will yeah I'll, i think that's that is there anything else you want to talk about with this documentary i think we've exhausted we, this is going to be a long one folks thanks for sticking around with us but you know what we've we have spent so much time you and i both in scenes of cup episodes that have been cut for time where yeah. we go on tangents about fiddler it's, it's nice that we finally gave ourselves this space to really just Get into all of the fiddlerness and exactly. Yeah, so we did yes. dialed our hearts content. So yeah, thank you for suggesting this. I enjoyed the documentary. If anyone's still sticking around and is on the fence about whether or not to watch the documentary, go over it. You'll probably enjoy it. It's a great. It's like an hour and a half. It's like a ninety-minute, easy yeah. to watch documentary. Very impactful. Very moving. Well done documentary. And if it's been a long time, watch Fiddler again because Fiddler's yes. great. Yeah, yeah. I think it's available on Amazon Prime is where you can watch that so definitely check it out it's a great movie still holds up today and directed by canadian director norman jewison who is who is not jewish (laughs) and i think that's one of my favorite funny jokes of that entire documentary is that he knows so much about judaism he'll convert to to judaism but he'll change his name to norman Norman christensen Christensen. (laughs) yeah very funny very it is very funny but there we go, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. Ryan, give us a classic Ryan Barakovich send-off. Hard to find me on social media, so don't even bother, even though 
many accounts probably do exist. So I don't know, do what you want, but just send all that love to Cup of Hemlock instead. Cause basically everything I share on the one social media I'm even a little active on is just the cup episodes when they go live. So you're not missing much. How about you, Matt? Fine. Follow me at Mackenzie Horner on all social media platforms. If you didn't get enough of Mac talking about Fiddler, you can check out our season two opening episode where myself and my podcast co-host Autumn did a two-hour deep dive into this musical. It's production team, the production history, the songs. It was a it was an experience, let me tell you, making that episode. So if you want more Fiddler and Mac, there's where you go. But other than that, you can always follow Cup of Hemlock on our podcast feed. If you want to take us on the go, we are still open to accepting sonnet submissions if you're still interested in doing that. Link is in the description below. And other than that, everybody, I guess for now, we will say thank you so much for watching. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you. Bye.